Good morning. Uh, if you would, please turn with me to Galatians 4, uh, verse 7. If you don't have a Bible today and you want a copy of God's Word, just throw your hand up there. David's back there looking to see if anybody needs one. We're going to turn to Galatians 4, and we're going to go to verse 7. There it is. Uh, if you remember from last week, we've been mountain climbing for the, the past couple of weeks. Uh, the mountain is the picture of Paul's argument. Right? He's, he started with the, the Jewish people. He started down here with the promise with Abraham, and then he moved up to the law with Moses, and then he moved up to faith with Christ, and then we got to the top of the mountain there, where we are all sons in Christ, and daughters too, you guys are included. Right? And then he started back down the other side there, and he, and he started against the Gentiles, and, and he mirrored it. Right? So now he, he talked about the faith the Gentiles had, and last week we talked about the law the Gentiles had, and today we're going to move into... The promise that Gentiles had. Uh, if you would, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to start there. Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. How is it you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now to change my tongue, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as David prayed in Psalm 119, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. My zeal has consumed me. Because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned, we saw Paul heading back down the Galatian side of the argument mountain last week. He's arguing in reverse, whereas the Judaizers, uh, with, he's, with Paul started with the promise with the Judaizers, then he moved to the law, then faith in Christ, then uh, sons and daughters of Christ, ending with that beautiful statement. Now, now he starts with the Gentiles, and he starts on their faith, and we got those beautiful verses, verses 27 through 29. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Because of our faith, we are one body in Christ. We are woven together so that if one fails, the whole body is damaged. These verses prepare us for uh, our study in Galatians when we get to chapter 6. And we look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted, so that you too will not be tempted. Excuse me. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Restoring one another in a spirit of gentleness. How we speak to one another. How we talk about God's word and what is laid, laid out within there. We need to do it with gentleness. Because we are of one body, we are to strengthen each other, encourage one another, and yes, exhort one another. But it's to be done in gentleness. So that you too will not be tempted. Be tempted how? If we think we're correcting someone, if we think we're, we're setting them back on the biblical path, how easy is it for Satan to slip in and whisper platitudes of righteousness in our ears? To whisper in our ear, oh, you're so much more righteous than that person. That person comes to church, and, and they, they, they hear the same thing you do, but you get it. That other person, they don't get it. How easy is it for Satan to do that? How easy is it for him to slither between two believers? and cause strife between the very members of our body. How well does a body function when the eye wars with the feet or when the arm wars with the ear? Paul tells us in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 13:1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. We are to have a spirit of gentleness and bear one another's burdens, for we are all one in Christ. Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now that Paul has discussed the Gentiles' faith, he moved to the, the Gentile law that they were under before Christ. It was a perversion of God's law. In that law, the Gentiles were treated like slaves. And, and just like the Jews, in his earlier argument with the Judaizers, had tutors, the Gentiles had managers. Placed there ultimately to show that no one could earn righteousness. It was out of our grasp. The law was there to show us that the only way to defeat the law was belief in the one who was able to overcome it, Jesus Christ. Paul reminds them, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoptions as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And now today, Paul finishes that thought. And he says in verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Based on this statement, Paul's going to take a look at what the Galatians are doing with the Judaizers. And he's going to spend the rest of chapter 4 doing three things. First, he's going to exhort them, or another word would be to urge them to return to their former way of, of believing, the true way, the way that calls them sons and daughters. Second, he's going to get very personal with them as he, as he pleads for them to leave the law in the past and press on towards the goal of Jesus Christ. And finally, he will give us an allegory or a story comparing Abraham's wives, Sarah and Hagar. Looking at verse 8, Paul says, 
However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those by which nature, by which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you. Perhaps I have labored in vain. Paul says, you were slaves and then you became free. Jesus came in and he, he knocked the wall down. He opened the prison. He freed you. Why would you ever go back into that building? Why would you ever go back into that prison? You were free from the burden of law. You were free from the worship of dumb idols. From the emptiness that comes from daily pouring your life into endless tasks that bring no joy and only a damning sense of duty. And he says, now, now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God. That's an interesting statement. Because the Gentiles would have known the gods that they worshipped at the time. Right? They would have known Zeus and Apollo and all the other false deities. But the contrast here is, you knew them, but they never knew you. Or by nature, no God. they were no gods at all. But in Christ, not only do we know God, but God, the creator of the universe, knows us. Knows each one of us. The Bible tells us that he counts the hairs on our head. It's easier for me. Harder for some of you. Right? But he still knows how many are up there. He knows us. And not only does he know us, but he sent his son for us. And when we believe in the son, we get the Holy Spirit as well. We see this type of thing in our day, too. We see people pouring their heart and soul into things all the time. They struggle and strain for things, maybe a possession or a cause or even another person, all while their idol doesn't know them. As Christians, just like the Galatian Christians, we have to be careful as well. Are we resting our relationship in Christ on the things that we do for Christ? Are we in right relationship with God because of how much scripture we've memorized, or how many hours we've dedicated to the ministry, or how much we tithe, or how faithful we are to come to church. Those are all good things. But we are in right relationship with God because of what Jesus did for us, not because of what we did for Jesus. Legalism is a crafty enemy, and he's got an ugly brother, and that brother's name is pride. How easy is it for us to slip into a transactional view of our faith rather than a relational one. To turn back to the weak things, the things that stand in the way of Jesus in our lives, the things that seek to build up our ego instead of Jesus and what he's done for us. Paul saw that happening in the Galatian churches, and now you're going to see just how deeply it affected Paul. He says that he fears that he labored over the Galatians in vain. Don't mistake what he's saying here. Work done for the kingdom of God is never in vain. But Paul is looking at the Galatians personally here. As, as a pastor looking out over the congregation that he loves, he knows they aren't perfect. He knows he isn't perfect. He knows that just like him, they have fallen before, and they've been hurt, and they've been bruised. They, like Paul, may have even done the hurting. But they are the congregation that God has entrusted to him, and he loves them. From the kindest, most supporting member to the member he disagrees with the most, he loves them. 
and yearns for them to have a right view of God and sin and Jesus and eternity. Now, some people will say, well, he loves them. I mean, look at what he's been doing. Up, up to this point, Paul's been harsh. He's been throwing curses at the Judaizers. He's been calling the Galatians foolish. He's been lecturing them. He's scolding them. Is that not love? Tell me, if I see you standing in a street out there on Balfour and a big 18-wheeler is bearing down on you at 60 miles an hour, and I scream at you, get out of the road! Is that not love? Would you stand there and say, Pastor Lance wasn't very gracious how he just spoke to me. I don't think I appreciated that very much. Oh, hopefully not. Hopefully you would hear the terror and the pain in my voice as I saw your demise screaming down the road at you, and you would run to the other side to safety. And so it was with Paul. He was screaming for the Galatians to move out of the way, move away from their defeat. He wanted, with everything in him, for them to look up and see the approaching danger and to flee to the safety of Christ alone. So he screams, get out of the road! Right up through the first half or so of Galatians here. He's been screaming, get out of the road. But now, like a parent who yells for their child to get out of the road to safety, he's going to pull the Galatians aside and he's going to speak to them like a parent. You, you've all done that. Maybe your child scares you. They run to the road or, or they, they run in front of something. And you say, get, get back. And, and the child gets shocked and they're a little scared, right? And then you have to sit them down and you have to talk to them. Why did, why did mom or daddy just, just yell at me like that? He's going to kneel down and he's going to get, get on the eye level of the Galatians. He's going to explain why he yelled. It wasn't out of hatred or anger, but out of a personal love that Paul had for the Galatians. And Paul is going to move from exhortation to his personal interaction with the Galatians. He will remind them of what brought them together, like a close friend reminding them of the love they had for Paul when he arrived there. So he says in verse 12, he says, I beg you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Paul came to the Galatians. He didn't hold his credentials over their head. He didn't tout his Jewish lineage. He didn't uh, talk about his training under uh, Gamaliel. I'm sure right. I might be confusing that with Gamaliel. I think it's Gamaliel. He was the best teacher in the nation or at the time there. He didn't hold that over them. He didn't say, I'm the most educated out of all of you. You should listen to me. He ate with them. He prayed with them. He sat with them. He held their hand when he cried. And here he is calling them brothers, begging them to come back to the true gospel. Like a parent begging their adult child to listen to their counsel, to stay away from something that is wrong or dangerous. And Paul's not demanding, he's begging. He continues. In the second half of verse 12 there, he says, You've done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Paul adds the Galatians have done him no harm when he visited earlier. In fact, they received him in spite of an illness he was suffering from. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what ailment Paul had endured here, but from verses 14 and 15, we get a picture 
it had something to do with eyes. We also know his condition would have caused people to despise him or loathe him based on, on how he looked there. I have a weird brain sometimes. I always wonder, on these hot California days, what life must have been like before deodorant. Like, how do people wear layers of clothing all day long, walk around in the heat, and then even want to be in the same room as somebody else? I mean, I know people can go nose blind to things, but I can't imagine being in a room full of people that bathed rarely and never used deodorant. It would have been even worse in Paul's day. In Paul's day, wounds or, or physical ailments wouldn't have received the same care that they received today. They didn't have disposable gauze or alcohol swabs or hydrogen peroxide or band-aids. They would have had some rudimentary soaps and maybe some salves, and, and that was about it. All this to say that if Paul had an infection in his eyes, it's very likely that pus was coming out of his eyes. And blood. It would have been disgusting. Right? It would have given them opportunity to loathe him. And Paul wouldn't have been able to run to the restroom to wash up with any sort of frequency because they didn't have those. So to suffice it to say that Paul's first encounter with the Galatians would have been pretty gnarly. But Paul says, despite all of that, despite the fact that Paul would have looked despicable or disgusting or loathsome, they received him like an angel from God or even as Jesus himself. And they didn't just receive him, they listened to him, and they believed, and they were a blessing to Paul, and they loved Paul. So Paul says, I remember that time. I remember how, if it would have been possible, you would have ripped out your own eyes and given them to me. I remember the love that we had when I was there in your midst, and sharing the gospel with you, and teaching with you about what Christian life looked like. I remember telling you of Christ's love, and how once you believed, you were baptized and you became new creations. Creations meant for good and not evil. Choosing to begin the sanctification process, wherein you would become more Christ-like in everything you do. And when I would tell you about Christ and the things we should do and shouldn't do to be more like him, to be more Christ-like in everything you do, you would listen. And you would turn from the evil things of the world. Paul continues in verse 16. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? The word of God is powerful. When the next book over, Paul tell, tells the Ephesians to put on the armor of God and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God is true and infallible, meaning without error. And the word of God does not change. It's the rock we should build on. It's a firm foundation. And the more the culture drifts, or even outright walks away from God, the word of God will become offensive. During an art party Allison and I had on the bus a while back, we overheard one girl telling another girl that she shouldn't talk about God because her teacher at school said it wasn't okay. We're not supposed to talk about God in class, she said. We can talk about demons. That's okay. Romans 1, verses 21 through 23. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God 
or an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Our culture does not honor God. We definitely don't give thanks to him. We have many futile speculations. Our culture's foolish heart has been darkened. Professing to be wise, we have become foolish. We live in a postmodern world. What does postmodern mean? Well, to know what postmodern means, you have to know what modern means, right? So modernism assumed that, that human welfare could be created through science and rationality and objectivity. They, they called themselves uh, scientists and, and, and um, excuse me, I got lost there. They, they, but after the tragic consequences of World War II, right, they assume, the assumption of modernism was viewed as doubtful or skeptical by the new school of thought who called themselves postmodernists. So modernism originated back in the 1800s. That's where we get the theory of evolution from. Right? Science is replacing God. Rationality is replacing God. Objectivity is replacing God. That's what modernism did. But then World War II happened, and everybody said, well, maybe modernism isn't the right way to go. So we ended up with postmodernism. A postmodernist criticizes modernism for their love towards science and rationality and objectivity. It rejects the, the, the current ideas of, of sociological things and anthropological methodology. But the big words to mean how things are done, how our families are run, how our, our, our businesses are run, how our churches are run. It denies a grand theory and argues that there is no social value or no social knowledge that is valid. So what we once knew is no longer valid. It argues there's no universal reality or absolute truth, but instead focuses on relative truths for each person. You've heard this said before, well, that's your truth. Right? That's your truth, but I have my truth. Right? That's post-modernity or post-modernism. There is no absolute truth in postmodernism. You have your truth, I have my truth. That's how you can see those coexist stickers on the back of the cars, right? Mm -hmm. You have your truth, I have my truth. But can two truths be right at the same time? No. That's the lunacy of, of postmodernism. Postmodernists say that conventional wisdom holds uh, that any belief in absolutes, especially of a religious nature, leads inevitably to oppressive absolutism. And such movements uh, like the Inquisition, the Crusades, and even Nazism. Therefore, what is true for you is true for you, and what is true for me is true for me. Knowing this, how should a pastor proceed? How do we how do we move forward in a culture that thinks that way? Well, Paul tells us. If you turn to, to 2 Timothy, Paul tells us. In 2 Timothy, starting in chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, uh, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. As long as our culture continues to darken its mind, and men look for someone to tickle their ears, there will be difficult things to be said from this pulpit. Things that have to be said. As much as possible, they will be tempered with love. But the world won't see them that way. The world will call what this book says hate speech, intolerant, bigoted. And the same will be said for those who preach from this book. But there is no other way. Martin Luther is quoted as saying, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are now attacking. I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all battlefields besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point. Love demands a warning. Love demands a call to truth. Love demands an exhortation to turn from sin. Paul is going to continue in verse 17 with an explanation of, of the Judaizers' motives. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Paul is pointing out the Judaizers, they were there not because they loved the Galatians, but because they were headhunters. They were looking for numbers. They were there for a prize. If you remember Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. The Judaizers weren't, were there to get numbers. They, weren't, they were there for their fame and their glory, they wanted to be the one that stole converts from the glorious, the great Apostle Paul. And once they had driven the Galatians back under the law, once they trapped them back into that man-made system of man-made rules, they disappear in the wind. And they lead the Galatians to suffer the consequences. Paul tells the Galatians in verse 18, but it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you, here, Paul is uh, contrasting the commendable manner that, that Paul sought out the Galatians. And, and he's saying, look, the, the Judaizers, they were there, they were headhunting, they were trying to, get, trying to get converts, and then they were going to leave, and you would drop out of their minds forever. But as for myself, I'm still seeking after you, even though I'm not there. Even though I can't see you, I'm still seeking after you. With great love in his heart, Paul continues. And you can just hear it. 
You can just hear. If you have a child and you've been with them from the beginning, whatever that may be, birth or adoption, and you've raised them, and you've introduced them to Christ, and they've, they've made their profession to Christ in front of you, and you've seen them be baptized, and you've seen them grow in the church, and they turn away from that. How does that feel? You can, you can see it right here in, in Paul's words. You can see that there's a dagger in his heart. He loves the Galatians. He loves his congregation. But he's watching these little children turn away. The children that he brought up. He says in verse 19, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I, I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. We see Paul's heart exposed here. He says, My children. Now, we might expect this type of tender language. If you read John, you'll see that a lot. My little children, my children, my children. He likes to say that, right? Paul doesn't say that. This is the one spot where Paul says this. This is real and raw emotion. It's the only place he uses this phrase, my children. Paul expresses how perplexed he is. He's, he's like a woman that, that has given birth and all of a sudden finds out she has to give birth again to the same child. It doesn't make sense. He's perplexed. And so Paul once more will give us one final allegory, one final story to compare the law to the freedom found in Christ. And he's going to do that in verses 21 through 31. He's going to compare Abraham's two wives, Sarah and Hagar. And he starts in, in verse 21 there. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. You see there, Abraham had two sons, right? Remember, Abraham, he'd been promised that he was going to have an heir. And God didn't do it right away. And I'm sure that none of you are like this, and I know I'm not like this, right? I don't expect immediate results. But God tarried, right? So Abraham and Sarah got together, and they had a brilliant idea. Said, hey, I've got a slave, Hagar. It's, culturally, that's what they did back then. Culturally, it would have been completely acceptable. So he slept with Hagar and had a, had a son. What is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. We look at the two different births. Uh, the birth of Ishmael uh, to Hagar was a normal birth, right? Two people got together, the birds and the bees, they had a baby, right? But the birth of Isaac was a miracle. If you remember, uh, if you remember, Sarah laughed at God. Right? When God said, she's going to have a baby when I come back this time next year. She laughed at it. Why? Because she was well past the birthing years. Those years had come and gone. She was well past it. But when she had Isaac, that was a miracle. The Bible says that God opened her womb. Right? God revived her womb so that she could have this miraculous baby. These are the two pictures that we see there. The law, which is born under man, born normally, grace, the freedom, born of a miracle. This is allegorically speaking, he continues, but for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She's Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. 
and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has had a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are the children of promise. But at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. And we see that the, the nature of the children, one born to a bondwoman, one born a slave, one born for servitude. And we see the other child born of a free woman. We see their characters. One was a man of war. Right? Ishmael was a man of war, the other man of peace. Remember, um, Abraham, he, he did go out and fight, but by and large, he was a peaceful man. Right? If, if Ishmael had been Abraham's heir, uh, the religion of, of Israel would have been a warlike character. We see the difference in the marriages. Right? Ishmael, Ishmael went out and he married an Egyptian worldly woman. Isaac went out and married a godly woman, a woman from their own family. And we see there the inheritance. One was simply rich in the world. The other inherited the blessings promised in the covenant of God. And we get to the treatment of one another, right? The worldly child persecuting the godly child. He sneered, he curled the lip at him. And finally we see the destiny. One was cast out and the other inherited the blessings of God. It's with this last story that Paul tries to drive home to these little children, his little children, the children that he raised up, that he baptized, that he trained, that he loved, that now thought of him as an enemy. But this last story here, he seeks to show them again the promise of Christ Jesus is stronger than the law given through Moses. And with that, he comes down off the mountain. The mountain of his argument. Remember, we started Abraham the promise, Moses the law, faith in Christ, we're all sons in Christ, and then he came down the Gentile side, their faith, their law, and now their promise. Next week, we'll move into chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at how this, the, the believers should be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to pray here in a minute. But if you're here today and you realize that you have been placing your faith in your goodness, in the good things you do, maybe it's even reading your Bible. Maybe it's coming to church. I get that a lot when I talk to people. How's your relationship with Christ? No, I make it to church every Sunday. Right? I make it to my garage every week. I'm not a mechanic. I'm not. Maybe you've been placing your faith in that. And you realize that you need to place your faith in Christ, in what Christ has done for you, not what you are doing for Christ. You've justified yourself turning a blind eye to the sin in your life, and you want to lay that burden down. You want Christ to be your salvation. Because you know the truth of Isaiah 53, 6. That all we like sheep have gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. Come down while we sing our last song. I'd love to get you started on the narrow path to Christ.
If you'd like to come down while we sing and spend some time with Jesus just praying, feel free. If you want someone to pray with you, just grab me. I'll pray with you. I'd love to. I look forward to, to jumping into Galatians 5 with you next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Paul's love for the Galatians. We thank you that it just pours out of those verses. And Lord, we thank you for the love that we have for each other. Lord, every week as I pray for this congregation, as I pray for individuals within this congregation, Lord, I know, I know that I want them to love you the way Paul wanted the Galatians to love you. Lord, I lift up this congregation to you. I lift them up to you, Lord, and I pray that you would continue to sanctify them, that you would continue to work in their lives, that opportunities would be given to them and to myself to witness for you, Lord, that you would open doors for us to talk about the love that you have for us, the fact that we are free now. Our eyes have been opened. We're no longer blinded by the little G God of this world. Lord, we pray that you would make us uh, an impact on our culture, an impact on our nation, for you, not for ourselves, not out of false piety or false righteousness, Lord, but because we love you and because we know that we're drowning men preaching to drowning men. Lord, we love you. Please help us to, to change us this week. Help us to to remember it this week as we go our separate ways. And we'll give you all the honor and all the glory. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen.